I don't know about you, but I'm addicted to my cell phone. I cannot get anywhere without it. I could not have been here today if it wasn't for this phone. The phone is important to all of us. I don't know about you, but if you can't find your phone, if for some reason it's lost, you can't do anything. We are utterly dependent on these phones. Now, they want us to be dependent on these phones, and in fact, they are continuing to perfect the AI in order to make us even more comfortable, to make them easier to use. But you know what research is showing is that the more human the technology becomes, the more racist it becomes. The only way that AI operates and gets better is by continuing to consume more and more of our humanity. And that humanity being fed in is being found to be affected by the same racism that our humanity is saturated with in our world today. And it would seem like, why is this true? Doesn't technology just like work? Isn't it neutral? I think Diedrich Williams summarized it well that not having to understand how whiteness works is how whiteness works. So today I want to talk about whiteness. Willie Jennings, who has had a remarkable influence on theological education already, has written a wonderful book after whiteness in which he defines whiteness for us. He says the term whiteness does not refer to people of European descent, but to a way of being in the world and seeing the world that forms cognitive and affective structures able to seduce people into its habitation and its meaning making. Now that's quite a definition. It's good, it's rich, it's important, but I'm going to summarize it today using two terms, two concepts, two interlocking logics, the logic of possession and the logic of elimination. Now what I'm sharing with you are things that I've had to learn. In my opinion, it shouldn't have taken this long to learn this stuff. I should have learned it in middle school, but now I feel like I need to teach it because my students, who are among the best prepared college students in the world, also don't know it. They don't know things. And if we are hopeful, and my understanding is there are a lot of people here who want to change the world, that if we want to change the world, then we need to understand the world. But we are literally crippled in our understanding of the world today. When it comes to possession and elimination, the most important thing for us to understand is the way in which the definition of property has been completely redefined and fundamentally reoriented the modern world. In order to understand the last 500 years, we have to understand the notion of property. And the reason why is because property rights are human rights. That is the definition that we are operating on now and have been for some time. I say 500 years because it was really born out of the conflicts of major empires across the world. To understand what I'm trying to explain to you today is not about understanding the United States, it's to understand the world system. If you recall something out of your history books, you know that the world empires were going at each other in the 1400s. They were striving for dominance. And in striving for that dominance, they were all seeking raw materials and raw labor and that raw labor was only to be used in order to extract more raw material. And so it wasn't sort of this peaceable, peace pipe smoking, handshaking, 
kind of experience. It was a process by which conquering, enslaving, and outright extermination was being practiced in order to expand property. First in terms of raw materials like gold and silver, but very soon in the nature of people. And that is really the distinctive aspect of understanding how property has really changed our world. Because the concept of property moved from things to people. We started to see bodies as things that you could own. Now, the property of people were people who themselves could not own property. Instead, these were people that you owned in order to expand your own possessions. And that was fundamentally what really energized and expanded what we know as the economic boom of the modern world. We are enmeshed in new property relationships. Those property relationships were inherent to particularly the African slave trade, and the African slave trade created its own problems. Now, the big problem was the interesting controversy that came about in terms of were African people people who had souls? You may know something about this controversy. What's interesting is not that they settled that there were souls. It was the more important controversy of could we own people who were our brothers and sisters in Christ? See, the only slavery system that we really know is a Christian slavery. Slavery was Christian. Christian slavery. And this debate about whether Christians could own other Christians in this way was actually settled very quickly. In the 1690s, it was made most evident in baptism rites. In the baptism rite here from the 1690s, it says, you declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul, and to partake of the grace and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. And so here you have it. It is that people could be owned, and the freedom that they were to achieve out of being saved was a spiritual freedom, only a spiritual freedom. It was not one that would affect their material lives. It was only a spiritual freedom. And now we have a core difference. And so this all happened before the founding of the United States. And I think what's important for us to know is that the United States in the book of history really comes in the middle. There are a lot of things that already took place. There are a lot of things that already were freighted into the founding and the development of our country. The United States is a little bit like picking up a book in the middle and trying to make sense of the story. We have to understand something of what was already brought in because these decisions, these convictions were consequential. So let's look at, for example, the first Naturalization Act of the United States. The first and for a long time, the only statement of how people became citizens of the United States. And there are two qualities that were important. First, you needed to be a free 
white person, which acknowledged that not all white people were free. It's interesting that most people do not know about the centuries-long history of white slavery. Slavery was evident among white people, but we don't talk about that, and it wasn't something that was consequential for our particular history as much. So you were a free white person. Whiteness was inherent to citizenship, but you were also a person of good character. Now listen, Americans were always understood to be white, but also to be good. Americans had a moral quality of goodness inherent to their race. Does this still matter today? Of course it does. Now I happen to be an executive board member of PRRI, which is one of the most prominent survey uh, sort of companies in the world today, nonprofit housed in Washington, DC. They put out a steady report of fantastic information. And this one really got my attention. They asked Americans about whether US has always been a force for good. And this moral quality of goodness in the United States, this particular one was taken in 2021, you'll see that most Americans agree with this statement. But who agrees more? Who most agrees? And what you find at the top of the scale is that it is white people who are religious. It is white evangelical, white mainline, white Catholic. So therefore, we have an intermingling that has happened throughout our history of Christianity and whiteness and the moral quality of being good. And I think part of this comes back to a mythical conception of the yeoman farmer, the way in which we sort of visualize what a true American was supposed to be. And one of the earliest immigrants, Pervacour, wrote a series of letters to try to define what an American was, and I found this to be astounding. Crivacourt, just a few years after the revolution, was trying to explain what does it mean to be an American. He said, what then is the American, this new man? A strange mixture of blood which you will find in no other country. Individuals of all nations are melted into a new race, a mixture of English, Scotch, Irish, French, Dutch, Germans, and Swedes. From this promiscuous breed, a new race now called Americans have risen. Now what's important about this is not so much that Americans were seen as a mixture of people from other nations. It was that Americans were the best. They took on the best qualities of the nations of the world. You see, Americans were a new superior race of people that had been crafted and honed to be stronger, better than the rest of the nations of the world. It was a hierarchy that was established, and that hierarchy of race infected everything and added to what had come before. In some ways, you may kind of know this, but I wanted to saturate deeper in your bones in the way that it did, for example, with Dr. King in Why We Can't Wait, which is my favorite book of Dr. King's. He wrote, to focus upon the Negro alone as the inferior race of American myth is to miss the broader dimensions of the evil. Our nation was born in genocide when it embraced the doctrine 
that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race. It was upon this massive base of racism that the prejudice toward the non-white was readily built and found rapid growth. This long-standing racist ideology has corrupted and diminished our democratic ideals. Now, how did we come to this? You see, the American continent, as many of you know, was populated by people. We kind of call them Native Americans, or but we know that there were people who were around. But that was not the conception that the settlers to America brought with them. The term they used was terra nullius. Anyone know their Latin? Terra nullius means nobody's land, that the land is empty. It was conceived of as empty and needed to be used. In fact, this conception didn't define indigenous people as people. They were thought of as rodents. They were thought of as wild animals. My parents are from Cuba. We talk a lot about cockroaches. And so when I think of this image, I think of they thought the land was filled with cockroaches and that that infestation needed to be taken care of. Clear the land in order for it to be useful. Possession leading to elimination. Possession and elimination operating together. I think we know. We already know stories of the indigenous peoples that were intentionally killed. It was not about making treaties and agreements, early notions that somehow they were different nations. Very early, we can see the letters, the comments made by the founders and others that these people were never really thought of as people to remain in the United States. They were to be eliminated. And this was encoded into law. And so the first Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice John Marshall, Made, was part of making several uh, kind of decisions. These decisions are still important to us. And this, this particular decision from 1823, he said their rights to complete sovereignty were necessarily diminished, denied by the original fundamental principle that discovery gave exclusive title to those who made it. And so there is an inherent connection between the elimination or the clearing of the land in order for the land to then be used for the extraction of raw material using enslaved labor. The plantocracy was entirely oriented around expanding to every aspect of available land. And of course, this is the reason for the Civil War. It went beyond the Civil War. Even the Confederacy during the Civil War were in active conversations about how to move into the Caribbean, to look at Central and South America. All of this was consequential. All of it mattered. And so we have decisions related to the personhood of these people and those personhood issues, which were already re there related to Native Americans, readily translated to unfree Americans. Now, here's the thing. Anybody know about Dred Scott? Dred Scott is one of the most important decisions ever made by the Supreme Court in the United States, not something that I was taught in school myself. But the trick here is that before the Civil War, in the 1850s, you see, we knew that there were these problems, like what are we going to do with people who think they're 
they're free. What do we do with black people who think they're free, going to other places? Sometimes they want to vote. They want to own things. Is this a good thing? And so Justice uh, Tawney decided that he was going to take care of this, that he was going to not just decide about this particular case, about a man who had moved to another country, was free man, was married, had children, but the widow of the person who had owned him and died wanted to take this property back. And so he decided they had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. In other words, this Supreme Court decision essentially declared all black people as non-persons, and that it affected not just those who were enslaved, but those who were supposedly free, reinforcing the fundamental racial hierarchy that had been established for a very long time. Now, as we expanded into the West, we often have a romantic image, covered wagons, moving on. You may have heard of something like homesteading. Isn't it remarkable? The United States actually gave away land for free. That's crazy, right? Land for free. But did African Americans benefit from that? They did not. Very few were able to take advantage of this. In fact, Andrew Johnson canceled out a person who had advocated so much for propertyless whites. This is why he opposed slavery, by the way. He felt that it was taking away legitimate wages and labor and the opportunity for advancement on the part of propertyless white people. But when he found out that his legislation would actually apply to propertyless blacks, he pulled the entire legislation, deciding that it would be better for such a benefit to not exist at all than for free black people to benefit at all. So when we think about this expansion of the West, which was a huge effort on the part of the United States, I don't know if you know this, but the United States for a time actually recruited white people from Europe to populate the United States. They sent out agents. They would pay for transportation. We had black people in the United States, free blacks who could have populated the West, but that was not desired. We actually recruited the right kind of people, white people, white Europeans, to come. Because if they came, if they had a little bit of land, if they protected their land, then we would be less susceptible for other empires to come and to take that part of the United States away from us. This is often called manifest destiny, but that really doesn't capture the depth of what was going on. I'm sure you know that a good part of what we know as the United States used to be Mexico. The Mexican-American War was intentionally stimulated in order to take over this land. And what was interesting, of course, is that Mexico was very weak, that it only recently freed itself from the Spanish Empire. And so were active discussions in American government about whether we should just take all of Mexico. We just take it all. You know, they decided not to. And do you know why? Because they believed that the Mexicans, below a certain point, there were too many of them who were too mixed. 
they were not the right kind of people. Biologically, they were already inferior. And of course, they were Catholic. So because they were not white enough, and because they were not Protestant, the border was established in order to take advantage of less populated areas. And they made promises to the indigenous Mexicans already living there. But those promises proved empty. So we've talked now about Native Americans. We've talked about Africans who have been forcibly brought to the continent. We've now talked about Mexicans, Mexican-Americans south of the border. Uh, but have you ever heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act? 1882, remarkable piece of legislation. Now, I think you know the way legislation works. If it was decided in 1882, when were the conversations happening? You see, there were efforts on the part of Californians since the 1850s to get rid of all of the Chinese that were in that state. You see, propertyless, wage-earning white people who had moved steadily westward were relying on something we usually call the American dream. They knew they had to work for other people, right? They knew that they were giving up their labor in order to expand the possessions of owners, right? Often through extraction industries of various sorts, but their hope was that they themselves would be able to become masters of their own domain, that they would be the property owners and that they would then be able to have other people that worked for them. That essentially was the American dream. Propertyless whites wanting to become propertied so that they could then take advantage of other people to do the labor for them. But these Chinese, they were a threat. And so the, the Californians on one side of the continent effectively lobbied Congress on the other side of the continent to make a sweeping judgment and to actually remove and deport every Chinese in America. Spectacular, amazing. This is not even talking about the colonization efforts that predated this, of the efforts on the part of the United States government to take all, all black people in America and take them to another country. We don't have time. So, we now have the United States in which we've taken care of much of the problem of Native Americans. We already have this radical segregation, lots of laws that had already, Jim Crow was well in place on black Americans. We are now removing Asian Americans. We even entered into agreements with other governments because of the threat of other Asians. Japanese were not thought of as inferior. In fact, the Californians thought the Japanese were hardworking and, and very intelligent and that propertyless whites could not compete with the Japanese. So the federal government made a decision. A gentleman's agreement is called in 1900, 1910, and that eliminated that, spread to all of Asia. And this, uh, Charles Francis Adams Jr., who was a, uh, president of Union uh, Rail Railroad and a descendant of the Adams presidents, he wrote this amazing tract. It was a talk and became a written tract. And his judgment was this at the turn of the century. From 1623 to today, 1898, the knife and the shotgun have been far more potent and active instruments in his dealings with the inferior races than the code of liberty and the output of the Bible society. 
In other words, religion really wasn't what would either tame or bring things under control. It was always going to be violence. And he celebrated it. He said, the inhabitants of those regions he cannot convert with the aid of the Bible and bring into his markets he gets rid of with the shotgun. Term it what you will, unchristian, brutal, exterminating. This has been the salvation of the race. It has saved the Anglo-Saxon stock from being a nation of half-breeds. And so always this specter of the civilized versus the savage, the civilized versus the savage. Toward the latter part of the 1800s, you may have seen pictures like this. This may represent some aspect of your family history or somebody you know. In the 1880s, huge numbers of people came from Europe, but they came from a different part of Europe. Instead of Northern and Western Europe, they were coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, and that created a problem. In fact, the radical increase accounting for up to 30% or more of the growth of the United States were people that created a panic among those already settled, what was sometimes called old stock. Political cartoons, things like a wave, this is riffraff immigration, this particular one comes from 1902. And whenever panic like this happens, it becomes something that's legislated. You see, here is a quick graph, and you can see Southern and Eastern Europeans start to rise, and do you see that sharp drop off? Do you think that those who were coming didn't want to come to the United States anymore? Did they change their minds? The United States enacted the most restrictive immigration policy ever in its history. And the fundamental framework of that restrictive immigration is what we still live with today. Now, not only did they create intentional things, that was a quota system, and it also went back, used the census before these Southern and Eastern Europeans came in order to knock out the Jews, darker colored people, Italians, Greeks, uh, either other people that they just didn't like and weren't trusting. What's important is that it became something that was a scientific exercise. You've heard of eugenics. Eugenics was not established in order to legitimate the, the sort of assumption that black people were inferior. That was already agreed. Eugenics was actually established in order to discern among white populations because we weren't sure which ones were the right ones to have. And so instead of a simplistic model, which had been promoted for a great portion of the 19th century of dominant racial groups, and I note here that this one to the bottom right is called an American, which I think is fascinating because there was already an acknowledgement that whatever Americans were there, we eliminated them in order to create a new stock of white Europeans. But it became a real effort, like measurements, skull, nose, eye color. It really put people through the paces. And this study was so extensive that in order to be an educated person, you had to understand eugenics. If we were meeting 100 years ago, this is the kind of thing that I would have been teaching you. 
so that you could be fully educated. Uh, we actually funded it. The United States gave a tremendous amount of money to study and process the development of statistics as a discipline, an academic discipline, was largely fueled out of eugenic efforts. We published, which are things that you can find online, extensive encyclopedic entries where you look up where someone is from and it gives the qualities, what they're like, their temperament, also what kinds of jobs they might be good for. It was a lot like how we think about uh, pigs, dogs. It was a classification system. It was an assumption. But it was always an assumption based on a hierarchy of goodness. It was not only scientific, it was popularized. Exhibits were placed around the country. These are dead guinea pigs over here. And their mixture were visibly shown so that everyone understood what was going on. It was promoting particular kinds of families. Another and probably most important popularizer was Madison Grant, who really formulated the extinction theory, that if we allow these to continue, we would no longer have white people. And so the fundamental thing was, if a person is going to be a citizen, who can mix and who can't? And we didn't speculate long. We actually made legislation to draw that funnel down and to choke off those people we did not want to become, and that actually affected the demographics of the United States. Now this graph I happen to like because I always just assumed that the rate of immigration was constant throughout American history. I'd never really thought about it. But this trough is really remarkable. First, you had an increase, and most of them were from Europe, but what this graph doesn't tell you is that those spikes are because of those different Europeans that I was telling you, those Southern and Eastern Europeans. And so what the United States did was they invoked legislation, a series of legislations, and they did it proudly. A senator who uh, wrote and sponsored one of the most important bills, he said, and I quote, we are discriminating, and I believe the American people want us to discriminate. And so this trough that occurred resulted in a time of the lowest level of immigration in U.S. history. And that coincided with the 1950s. By the time you get from the restrictive immigration from the early 1920s, 1917, 1924, 1927, to the 1950s, that's the time in which all of the cultural heritage would already been lost. You no longer speak the language, you don't know how to cook the food, you don't dress other than maybe for some kind of festival or special occasion. It was a time when it was okay to, um, for a German descendant to marry a Swedish descendant, you know, have all this mix, say I'm a quarter this, I'm a half this, all that kind of stuff, right? The 1950s is really the time in which white Americans were birthed in the United States. An amalgamation. Just a sense of when people say, I don't know, I'm American, right? That 1950s is where we get so many of our ideas because at the same time, TV, movies, television, all these things created a new sense of normativity. Now, here's another PRI poll about nostalgia for the 1950s. So the question is, since the 1950s, do you think American culture and the way of life has mostly changed for the better? 
or has it changed mostly for the worse? Well, what's interesting is when you get past the middle point, majorities are all white. You have the category white. You also have 65 plus, which in the United States is almost entirely white. You have white mainline Protestant, white Catholic, white working class, Republicans, which as a party are dominantly white. And you have, at the very end, white evangelical Protestants. If you see enough polls, you won't be surprised that at the upper end of almost all these scales is white evangelical Protestantism. Now I ask you, was the 1950s a good time for everybody? Well, no, obviously not. The 1950s was not good for everyone. It was actually a time when churches did not want black people in there. They actually protested against integration. It was a time when there was a movement among black Christians praying in front of churches that they would be welcomed into their sanctuaries. But at the same time, the prosperity of white people, expanding suburbanization, and the ability to help people with credit, to make things affordable. That's what the federal government invested its time in, to be able to expand the wealth of white people. I don't have to talk about redlining, but what we have is a new time of threat because what ended up happening is the Cold War initiated new immigration, just a sliding of the scale that had unintended consequences. Those who sponsored this bill promised that the demographic makeup of the US would not change. They promised, but they were wrong. We now have more Asians and Latinos than ever before and we are beginning to approach the 15% foreign born mark. In fact, we hit it in 2007. And it seems like America has a temperature gauge that when it raises its foreign-born quotient to a particular time, a particular panic starts to take place. Now, of course, this comes around the threat of this being an American nation. This is from the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California, white suburb, uh, but it is also at the time at which restrictive covenants were still in place and possession and elimination take place. So, a few more closing thoughts. What does it mean to be a true American? And who is welcomed? These are still being affected in our immigration policy. You can see that when you're asked about support for restrictive immigration policies, you may now not be surprised that those who are most in favor of restrictive policies are white people who are Christian white evangelical Protestant, white Catholic, white mainline Protestant. What attitudes are underlying that restriction? You know, when you ask them about immigrants and whether you agree that immigrants threaten traditional American freedoms and values, or, or sorry, customs and values, or whether immigrants are invading our country, once again, those who most agree with the most negative views about immigrants are white Christians, white evangelical Protestant, white mainline Protestant, white Catholic. How about the idea of using government benefits, party affiliation, and religion? Religion is what I'm focusing on here because it's most important for my purposes with you. These are the people who are threatening possession. These are the ones who are threatening our property. And so they need to be eliminated at the top of the scale. 
white Christians, white mainline Protestant, white Catholic, white evangelical. And so I close with Willie Jennings one more time. It is precisely this serious moral work that continues to escape the attention of many Christians in this America. We have never unbraided the strands of race and Christian faith. And because of this, our Christian faith is deeply diseased. That we are Christians is not in dispute. That we understand what it means to perform our faith, to think as Christians, that is contested terrain. What we're in need of at this crucial moment are women and men who know how to think their faith, perform their faith in ways that untangle the racial imagination from the Christian imagination. And so I go back to my phone. I realize most of us want to live in a world where we say, it doesn't matter, I don't pay attention to this, I just love people, whatever. The racialized religion of our world today inheres to every aspect of our lives. It's as ubiquitous as our cell phones. And I would ask you, what can we do different? And are you willing to stand with me? Can we work together?